Warning. This episode contains crimes against a child and discusses suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. For season two, I'll be discussing murders from the year 1970 through 1979. Today's story is part two of a male murderer from 1972. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly recommend you stop now and listen to that episode first. For everyone else, it is time to hear the crazy conclusion to this case from 1972. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to the year 1972. On September 6, 1972, during the Summer Olympics in Munich, an Arab gunman murdered 11 Israel athletes. The Israeli wrestling team was being held hostage by terrorists demanding the release and safe passage of 234 Palestinians and non-Arabs jailed in Israel to Egypt in exchange for the hostages. Unfortunately, the deal went wrong and all hostages were killed. That same year, the Equal Rights Amendment was passed by the U.S. Senate, providing legal equality of all sexes. Another thing that happened in 1972 was a robbery murder that brought about many trials and major deep dives. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. The Texas community was outraged over the outcomes of Fred Foy Young's first two murder trials. As a recap, Dennis Ray Anderson pleaded guilty to the murders of both Mabel McCormick and her three-year-old granddaughter, Leslie Bowman. Fred Young pled not guilty and went to trial for both cases. He was found guilty, but was only sentenced to probation in both trials. So on March 16, 1973, when it came time for Fred Young's third trial on a charge of arson, the public made themselves known. During the arson trial, spectators cheered when a witness would contradict statements by defense, leading the defense team to tell the jury that the court spectators were hypocrites who are trying to railroad Young and his defense team. Anderson and Young both testified in this trial, with Anderson saying, I set fire to two, maybe three of the rooms, while Young was in another part of the house loading furniture. But Young did help me start the fire in the house by bringing me newspapers. Some new witnesses were called for this third trial, such as Mabel's husband, Thomas McCormick. He testified about the final conversation he had with his wife. He called Mabel at noon, which was their daily routine. And during this call, she said two Houston men, who'd been there two weeks before, looking at a bedroom suite, had come back and said they were buying it. The deal ran between $1,500 and $1,600. Do 
She added that the baby was cutting up and she'd call him back. But she never did. Menlo Klingman, a freight company inspector, testified he came to McCormick's antique shop around 1.30 p.m. that day regarding a claim Mabel had filed on a damaged shipment. He knocked on the door and a short blonde youth answered and said the lady of the house was out and would be back about 3 p.m. Then a taller man came out of a truck in the driveway and led him into the shop. I thought he worked for Mrs. McCormick because he knew the location of the damaged merchandise and showed it to me. He also initialed an inspection form for me and I gave him a carbon copy of it. A major objection in this trial was over pictures of Mabel McCormick's battered body once she had been removed from the house. The defense argued, This is not a murder case, Your Honor. The man is on trial for arson. The state is attempting to inflame the jury. As far as the pictures are concerned, they will resolve no issue and will only serve to inflame the prejudice of the jury. Prosecutor Coe came back with the argument that the pictures were needed to establish a motive for setting the fire and that a part of the motive was the condition of the two bodies. The judge denied this objection and sided with the state. The jury was allowed to view the images. The defense also felt that there was a vendetta against Young and that the court was packed with spectators who are making the court proceedings a circus. Mike Metheny, part of the defense team, said, He was tired of seeing this boy dragged through the courts of Texas because of a personal vendetta by District Attorney Coe and Hardin County Sheriff Billy Payne. The defense went on to tell the jury that Prosecutor Coe was trying to get a prison term for Young because he failed to get prison terms at Young's two murder trials. The jury deliberated for more than five hours, but were unable to reach a verdict, so they were sequestered for the night and began deliberations at 9 a.m. the next morning. They reached a verdict. They found Fred Young innocent. Defense attorney Goodwin expressed, I am more than happy that 12 people who sat on that jury could withstand the psychological pressures that might have been put upon them. I felt it would be harder to overlook the pressures of neighbors and friends than it might have been some other place. Prosecutor Coe said he was not done going after Young and had no intention of dropping the theft charges and will prosecute them as soon as the judge can find a place for the case in his docket. But that trial never happened. Fred Young was now out in society. And if he didn't get into any trouble over the next 10 to 15 years, he would be a truly free man with his probation lifted. I don't believe Young ever got into any more legal trouble but he did seem to have a troubled love life after the trials. At 24, he married a 17-year-old named Margaret A. Jorges on March 8, 1975. But they divorced a few years later on June 8, 1978. 
at 28, a few months after his divorce was finalized, Young married 27-year-old Carolyn J. Robertson on August 11, 1978. But their marriage ended on September 25, 1985. After this, he married a woman named Barbara Miletto on August 15, 1992. But they were divorced by February 18, 1993. At this time, Margaret came back into his life, and they remarried on August 1st, 1993, but divorced again on December 27th, 1993. A few years later, Young reunited with his third wife, Barbara, and they remarried on April 10th, 1997, and stayed married for a good amount of time, but ended up divorcing on July 29th, 2009. Fred Foy Young ended up passing away later that same year, on October 4th, 2009. Dennis Ray Anderson, who had pleaded guilty to the murders of Mabel McCormick and Leslie Bowman, was serving two life sentences. In 1973, he was also convicted of arson and got 20 years, and of theft and got 10 more years. He and his wife, Deanna, divorced in 1974. One would think this would be the end of his story. But in 1989, after only 17 years in prison, Anderson was let out on parole due to overcrowding. This is a small business plug. Please support small businesses. I would like to introduce you to an amazing online clothing store, The Well Clothing Boutique. Shop at thewellclothing.com. They carry sizes from small to 2XL, and you can also find your favorite piece of jewelry at The Well to jazz up your outfit. Check out their Instagram at thewellclothing. From 1980 to 1989, the Texas prison systems were struggling from new policies such as the Prison Management Act and the Ruiz Crowding Stipulation. If you recall, we talked about Ruiz and his class action lawsuit in episode 3 of this season. Because of the Ruiz ruling, the Texas prison systems could not operate in excess of 95% capacity meaning no new prisoners were allowed to enter until enough prisoners eligible for early release were let out on parole. Due to these population control policies, Texas prisons saw the release of thousands of prisoners prior to the expiration of their sentences. In 1980, 7,000 Texas inmates were paroled. By 1985, that figure had grown to almost 9,500. And by 1990, over 45,000 prisoners had been released on parole, and Dennis Ray Anderson was lucky enough to be one of them. Anderson was now 43 years old, shocked that he was out on parole and now could start a new life. But he was ordered to remain on parole supervision for the rest of his life in Harris County, 
and had to write to his parole officer once a year. Not much else is known about what he did during this time until 1997, when he got married. On September 21, 1997, Dennis, then 51, married Stacy Leanne Lutz, 28, in Houston, Texas. In 1999, however, Stacy seemed to have disappeared, but Anderson did not report his wife missing, and according to later reports, Stacy's family thought she had returned to California, where sometimes she liked to visit. No one ever reported her missing to law enforcement officials. Once again, it seemed like Anderson was able to stay under the radar for a good amount of years. That silence ended, however, on February 17, 2010, when Anderson, now 63, was accused of striking a Houston woman with his hand while trying to steal property from her. He was charged with robbery causing bodily injury, but ended up pleading guilty to a lesser charge of theft from a person on July 6, 2010. He was sentenced to 180 days in jail. The Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles considered revoking Anderson's parole for this incident, but decided against it since it was his first violation in the 21 years since his prison release. Anderson was released on August 13, 2010, somehow able to escape the prison term he deserved again. A call to Crime Stoppers two months later, however, ended Dennis Ray Anderson's freedom. On October 18th, an informant called and tipped off officers of a possible body at the home in the 7500 block of Split Oak Court. He explained to the officers that Anderson told him he had strangled a person and placed the body in a barrel, and he takes the barrel with him when he moves from state to state. The police went to the neighborhood of Woodland Oaks to the address 7815 Split Oak Court in northwest Harris County. Anderson was not home when they arrived, but his roommate, Ed Harmon, allowed them to search the property. When they walked to the backyard, they found an old 55-gallon rusted barrel with black paint on it. They pried the barrel open and discovered skeletal remains, later specifying that it was the remains of a female. She had been wrapped in a bedsheet and trash bags, then covered in dirt. They also found her legs to be bound by weed trimmer line that was also tied to the neck. Anderson knew the police were looking for him in connection to the body found in his backyard, so he took off running towards Florida on a Greyhound bus. The police had only charged him with tampering with evidence at this time, and the U.S. Marshals Task Force put out this alert to the public. Police are asking for the public's help in finding Dennis Ray Anderson. He's approximately 6 feet tall and weighs about 230 pounds. He has blue eyes, receding white hair, and may or may not wear glasses. He was last seen wearing a gray short sleeve button-up shirt, blue jeans, tan work boots, and a black NASCAR cap. 
with yellow stripes or flames on it. Anderson was also reported carrying a small black-brown leather bag and a six-pack blue and white cooler. It is believed that Anderson has no connections to the Pensacola area. It is also believed that he has no money and will be on foot looking for food or a place to stay. October 29, 2010. Dennis Ray Anderson committed suicide. He hung himself with his bootstraps in a hotel room in Pensacola, Florida. The police found him and a suicide note on November 1st. The note said he had killed his wife in the 1990s and angrily alleged she had stolen money and personal property from him. At no time did anyone know of my murder of my wife. I regret this greatly, but it happened, the note said. It took five months to officially identify the remains found in the barrel. There had been no dental records or x-ray files for anthropologists to consult to identify the woman in the barrel. Her bones were in bad shape and in some places had eroded through completely. Stacy had no biological family members closely enough related to provide a mouth swab for DNA comparisons. But Detective Sean Curazal had the idea to use DNA from Stacy's twin sister, Tracy, to identify her. Tracy was also dead. She had been murdered in 1990, and her case remains unsolved. I have been calling the Houston Cold Case Unit for weeks and still have not received a reply, but as soon as I hear back from them, I will give y'all an update on Tracy's case. In order for the pathologist to correctly identify Stacy, they would have to use preserved tissue samples taken from Tracy at the time of her autopsy and compare that to the DNA extracted from Stacy's bones. They were successfully able to identify their remains as Stacy Leanne Lutz, believed to have died in 1999. Before I end this episode, I want to detail the cases of the five victims police departments believed were connected to Dennis Anderson. I mentioned these victims during part one, but didn't go into detail as they did not have a connection to Anderson or Young. But as promised, I will talk about them now. As a refresher, the victims were Christina Mitchell and her eight-month-old baby Scott, Evelyn Leopolos in Hot Springs, Arkansas, Jewel D. Kowser in Oklahoma City, and Colette Anise Wilson in Houston, Texas. On February 16, 1971, Christina Mitchell and her eight-month-old son were found slain in their apartment by her husband, James. When he returned from work that evening, he found his wife bound and gagged with a knife sticking out of her chest. Scott, the eight-month-old, was found in the bathroom, his skull crushed. 
it was later discovered that Christina had been sexually assaulted during the attack. Police were able to get conclusive fingerprints on the knife, a cast of tennis shoe print, and a personal article left behind by the killer. The case would not be solved until June 1974, when an inmate at Lebanon Correctional Institution in Ohio confessed to the crime. John Jr. Miller, 23, was already indicted on four counts of murder and of armed robbery and breaking and entering when he admitted to killing Christina Mitchell and her son. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. In 1969, on an April spring night in Little Rock, Arkansas, Evelyn Leopoulos was killed during the commission of a robbery in her antique shop. She had been stabbed four times in the heart. The crime remains unsolved. As an interesting side note on this case, her son, David, found out the horrible news while at a U.S. military base in northern Italy. Five minutes later, he got a call from his childhood friend, Bill Clinton. Yes, former President Bill Clinton was a good friend of David's and even attributed some of his values to Evelyn. In 1957, when Clinton was 11 years old, he recalled the current Arkansas governor defied a federal order allowing black children to attend Little Rock Central High School. And that is when Evelyn sat him down and informed him that there were no gray areas in racism. Clinton told his friend David later on, Your mother had a lot to do with how I feel about race. She was the only person who ever pulled me aside and told me how wrong prejudice was. On December 29, 1971, Jewel D. Kauser was found dead in her daughter's house while watching her 20-month-old granddaughter, who was not harmed. No weapon was found at the scene, but she had been struck in the head several times. Normally, Jewel babysat at her own home, but this evening she went to her daughter's house as her son-in-law was expecting responses to a want ad for an auto engine and television set. Her son-in-law said he called her earlier in the evening, and Jewel told him that only one man had come by to inspect the motor. In March 1972, a 38-year-old man was being investigated for her murder. He had been arrested for pinching a woman in a supermarket parking lot and after police found pornographic material in his car. The police did not share his name or any links to Jewel's murder. I am not sure if he was ever convicted for her murder or if her case remains unsolved. On June 17, 1971, after summer band camp, 13-year-old Colette Anise Wilson was dropped off by her band director around 12.30 p.m. at a bus stop at Texas 6 and Country Road 99. Her mom arrived five minutes later, but was unable to locate her daughter. Colette's remains were found on November 26, 1971, in a Houston reservoir. This, just days after the body of Gloria Gonzalez, 19, was found 200 feet away. And just a week prior, 
the bodies of two 15-year-old girls, Debbie Akerman and Marie Johnson, were found floating in a bayou south of Houston. All four girls were believed to be victims of the same killer, Edward Harold Bell, a self-described serial killer who confessed to Colette's murder but was never convicted of the crime. want to say a huge thank you to newspapers.com, Houston Press, the Beaumont Enterprise, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when I discuss a female murderer from 1973. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, as it really does help more people to find my podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at crimesofadecadepod and on Twitter at crimesofadecade.com.